سلام خوش آمدید مرحبا اهلا و سهلا اناشنیکا خوانجامیدا سلام علیکم شوراغلاد اولام بینبینیدوس здравствуйте добро пожаловать hello welcome to our podcast DLI FLC lingo took the D-Lab test, and I bonded. I scored an 89 on the D-Lab test, two years after I had begun to teach myself Korean, associating with Koreans in Korea, hanging out with Koreans in Korea, and of course, married to a Korean spouse, speaking Korean at home. But when I took the D-Lab test, I failed it. 95% of our instructors are native speakers. Curtis Powell, who, spoiler alert, did eventually pass the D-Lab with flying colors. He represents the 5% who aren't native speakers. This means that 5% have to be so good at a different language that they can teach others well enough to bring them to a high proficiency. Curtis is originally from the East Coast. In Maryland, Curtis didn't need to speak Korean. Well, almost. was a Korean family that had just recently immigrated to the United States at that time. And I befriended the family's eldest son. And I was, I believe I was 16, he was 15, one year behind me. And we just became friends. I was curious about his language and he was new at learning English as well. So we kind of helped one another out in that regard, you know. While Curtis had an introduction to Korean from his friend and from Taekwondo, it wasn't a solid base, but it was a start. And then he met his future wife while at his first duty station. I met my wife in Colorado Springs. She's an American citizen, but she's Korean. I used a little bit of Korean. She thought it was cute. She said, oh, you're so cute. You speak a little Korean. But, uh, <laughs> but nothing serious. It was just the basic, you know, little simple things. I would say the, the little phrases that I knew and, you know, and that went over well with her, I guess. And I got my first assignment from Fort Carson to Korea. Coincidence, I have a side. Could have been Germany, could have been anywhere, but Korea, I was like, oh, wow. And that was when I went to Korea in December of 1983. My wife and I went together. And I stayed there for about three and a half years. And that's when my Korean language learning really took off. Being in country, being in the culture, being welcomed and accepted by the Koreans with whom I came into contact during that time, how well they treated me, contrary to what I had heard before I went to Korea about being African-American and racism and stuff. I did not experience that, and I guess, uh, I'm not saying that other people had not, but I did not experience that. And perhaps it was because of my outgoing personality and the fact that I was getting into learning the language and culture when I spoke Korean uh, in public or some, you know, interacting with Koreans in stores or whatever. I drew a lot of attention for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> six foot three, uh, 200 pound African-American wasn't <laughs> a common appearance in Seoul, Korea in the early 1980s. So let me put some context to his story. South Korea in the early 80s is vastly different from the South Korea we know it as now. To understand how things changed, we're going to have to go back in time to the aftermath of the Korean War. South Korea was desperately poor. 
through the 50s and into the early 60s. Their per capita GDP was only $93. They were one of the poorest nations at the time. In 1961, South Korea experienced a military coup, which ushered in a dictatorship that spanned three decades. But for all that, it brought some rapid economic and industrial growth with an intense focus on education. Over the course of the next 20 years, the GDP increased exponentially to $1,870. South Korea was on its way to being the economic and cultural powerhouse we know it as today. But in the early 80s, when Curtis arrived in South Korea, it was still a developing country. There were few opportunities for the residents to travel and experience the outside world. So you understand why Curtis, as a tall African-American soldier, might surprise Koreans with whom he came in contact. So I attracted a lot of attention, and understandably so. People would come up to me, and, and they would shake my hand and say, thank you, you know, and they're, maybe they're broken English or whatever, trying to communicate with me. Didn't know how much I, Korean I could speak at that time. Curtis had joined the military as a wire systems installer operator. He had worked mostly in the management systems. You don't have to know what any of that means. All that's important is that his job had him working closely with the Korean augmentation to the United States Army, or as they're known as, katusas. That's when his Korean really took off. And I worked with about four or five of those, uh, of four or five katusas, and one of them asked me one day in Korea, he said, he said to me, he said, wow, you learn fast, because we were speaking Korean much of the day, um, the, the Koreans with whom I worked, the Katusa soldiers with whom I worked. And one, one, one realized, you pick up fast. You're learning our language really fast. Why don't you learn how to read and write? And I was like, oh, no, that's impossible. I couldn't do that. He goes, it's very easy. And he wrote the alphabet down for me on a piece of paper, with the, the vowels and the consonants and the sounds in English. And he laid everything down for me real clearly so I could, you know, read it and, and, and figure out what was going on. And then at the bottom of the paper, he wrote down English or Korean words that I knew how to speak. And the first thing he wrote down was, Annyeong haseo, which means, hello, how are you in Korean? And he wrote it down syllable by syllable. First he wrote the first syllable, an, and I looked at the, what he had written down and then I followed the the, the guidance that he had given me on the sheet and the pronunciation of the consonants. And I started to gradually read each syllable, and I said, an, then he wrote the second syllable, nyung, and then I looked for it, and I found, then I repeated it, I stated it after I read it and figured it out, nyung, and then I knew where it was going. When I got to an young, and I saw the ha say yo, I figured, I got, it came to him right away. And I was like, oh my God. He said, I told you you could do it. No way, I'm not, no way. He said, way, you're doing it, you did it, you did it. I was like, oh my God. And then he wrote some more words down and I started to, it just started to click. And I took that sheet from that day and I walked through the local town and, and the, the city that, that was close to where I was stationed. I get on the bus and I go to the, the nearest city or nearest larger town. And I just practiced reading the signs, the traffic signs, the restaurant signs, the store signs, the tea shop signs. I just practiced reading the signs. And by the end of that week, I didn't need the sheet anymore. It was during this time in Korea that Curtis learned what military intelligence was. It changed his life's course irrevocably. I met someone, well, someone with whom I was stationed, heard me speaking Korean 
to the Katusa soldiers, you know, we were interacting, just speaking Korean, and that person had never seen a U.S. soldier speaking Korean, like I was speaking. And he said, man, you've got to get into MI. I'm like, what's MI? Well, I hadn't even thought about it. It was just, I was just doing what I normally did as a hobby. He said, you need to be a Korean linguist for the Army. If you want to stay in the military, which I did, and if you like the language and culture, which I did and do, he said, you need to bring those together. Do something that you love to do in the military if you plan to stay in. And why not use your skill as a Korean linguist? And I was like, wow. So I started to research into it. Someone recommended interrogator to me because of my personality. They so said, you're, you're an interaction person. You're, you're, you like to deal with people and, and, and relate to people. So that's what interrogator does. You, know, you sit face to face with someone and you question that person and you talk to him or her or you try to get illicit information. So I researched it and I said, yes. That's what I want to do. Getting there wasn't as easy as you'd think. For one, the D-Lab was a challenge for him. I took the D-Lab test, and I bombed it. I scored an 89 on the D-Lab test two years after I had begun to teach myself Korean associating with Koreans in Korea, hanging out with Koreans in Korea, and of course married to a Korean spouse, speaking Korean at home. But when I took the D-Lab test, I failed it. So I, met, I went to uh, another base where the Korean linguists who were serving in the military in Korea doing the MI, MI job. And I explained my situation, and he, I said, how do I pass the D-Lab? Can you give me some clues? I was like, yeah, I, I want to be in MI so badly, but I just got to get past the D-Lab so I can go to DLI to get formal training. And he said, when you take the D-Lab, pick your answer instinctively. Don't change. And I kept changing the first time. I was nervous. There's multiple choice. I was like, oh, maybe this. Oh, no, maybe this. And I, and I got caught up in the, the test anxiety thing. And he said, just pick your answer and leave it alone. Something will drive you instinctively to the right answer. If you just relax, follow the rules, and pick your answer and move on. Don't change anything. And I did that, and I scored 115 the second time. Now I can learn Korean, something I've been doing for almost three years. I can do it officially now because the test says I can do it. Things were a little different back then. When Curtis called the MI branch to make sure they had received his package, they told him they didn't need him. Yes, they needed Korean linguists, but they didn't want to have to send anyone to DLIFLC. And she said, we want people who are already language qualified. We, don't, we have enough we're sending to DLI. And then I said, oh my God, now how do I do that? She said, you have to take the DLPT in Korean. And at that time in the 80s, to be a linguist, you needed a 1-1. One, one. I know that's laughable now. I know a 1-1 one, one is like four or five months in the basic course. <laughs> but that was the standard at that time. So I took my first D, uh, DLPT, a one plus, one plus. I was blessed. You are hereby certified as a Korean linguist. I was like, yay, doing cartwheels and stuff. Curtis did end up going to DLI eventually. He took an intermediate Korean class a few years later. After two tours as an MLI and a second tour in Korea, Curtis retired after 22 years. While he could have gone back to Maryland for a job, he ended up in Monterey as a teacher at DLI-FLC. I, I guess after 20 years in the military, I love that 
connection to the military that I maintain. I never lost it even after I left the military because I started teaching here. I retired in um, October of 2000 and I started teaching here in May 2001. So that connection, military connection, was pretty consistent throughout that time. And But I enjoy teaching Korean to our military personnel because it's an important skill that they're acquiring. And I believe in it totally. Um, I love our military. I really appreciate my service. I hope I gave as much to our country and my service that the military gave to me, at least half, because I received a lot from the military. And I'm really proud of that. And I love to see um, these young people come through DLI, go through this process and develop, seeing them go from zero knowledge in Korean to some of them uh, uh, achieve level three on the DLPT. And that's rewarding to see them go from zero to that level in 63 weeks. And I just feel uh, like a sense of accomplishment, like I'm contributing something, uh, contributing to something very important. And I think that's what drives me the most. Curtis went from being intimidated by the Korean alphabet to teaching it to military personnel. His message is not just to encourage his students, but to other military members who want to be linguists. If he can do it, he says, you can do it too. Now.